So I've had a little change of plans. My original goal when I came back from Arizona was to do the Easter message and two more messages and then get back into Luke. And uh, after last week's message, I made an offhand remark that generated some interest. And I said this, I said it's, it's possible for genuine Christians who are going to heaven to lack assurance of their salvation. And that, that resonated with people, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from that one comment. And so praying about it and seeking the Lord's wisdom, I, I, I felt like that I needed to address that today. And then next week we'll go back into Luke, and I'm still debating, just to let you know long term, I, I tried to take the summer to do a special topic. Last summer it was Egypt, um, um, Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. And I was planning to do the Ten Commandments, but uh, with a little break we took earlier this spring, I'm, I'm trying to figure that one out. But uh, we'll see how that goes along. But um, I want to talk about assurance of salvation, but I also want to talk about the nature of salvation. I, I don't have a, a, a central passage of Scripture as this is a topical message, a theological topic, more or less, that we're going to be doing today. And so... Rather than stand for Bible reading, let's bow our heads and we'll pray and begin. Lord, uh, as I have been praying uh, for weeks now, I pray, first of all, that those who, who are self-deceived into thinking that they're believers, Lord, and really are not, that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes. I pray that your Holy Spirit will open their ears so they can hear and that you will uh, make their heart a heart of flesh so that they can respond to the gospel. But Lord, my heart also goes out to those who are genuine Christians, but they're dealing with doubts. And sometimes those doubts come because of their personalities, and, and Satan knows how to rob them of joy. And others have doubts for, and lack of assurance for other reasons. And so today... I pray that you'll give us clarity and that uh, as we walk out from here, we can rejoice in our salvation and knowing how good and wonderful you are in Christ's name. Amen. So when, when I use a, the term assurance of salvation, to be honest with you, we need to define terms because there are some terms that are commonly confused and two of them are security and assurance, security and assurance. Security describes the Bible's teaching that when we are saved, we are kept by God's power. Um, it answers the question, is salvation forever? Well, the answer is, it is. Jesus said this, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. Now, how, how long is eternal life? Uh, yeah, it doesn't go away, right? He does not come into judgment. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? Just meditate on that for a minute. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's John 5.24. Paul said in Romans 8.1, I love one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? If you are truly saved, then you have eternal life. And it goes without saying, eternal life is forever. There are, there are many more verses in Scripture, but we understand eternal life is eternal, right? We don't lose our salvation. When you get your salvation, you don't lose it. And so security, when we use the term security, that is objective. It's, it's based upon the teaching of Scripture. But the other term is assurance. Assurance is different from security in that assurance is, and this is very important you understand what I'm about to say, it's the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that we are saved. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. Let me read it one more time. By this we know that we abide in Him, 
and he in us. How? How do we know that? Because he has given us his spirit. So while security is objective, it's based upon Bible teaching, assurance is subjective. It's based upon the witness of the Spirit. And it's very important for us to understand that distinction. So last week in the, in the sermon, I addressed people who firmly believe that they are Christians and are going to heaven, but instead are on the pathway to destruction. They're on their way to hell. That, that um, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That sermon dealt with the characteristics of true spiritual fruit. What does spiritual fruit look like, right? Now, all Christians, and this is important, all Christians at one time or another face a doubt, wondering if their salvation is real. And so that brings up a question then, how do Christians know that they are saved? The answer is that you do not look back to a past event. But you look at your current life. This, this was the thrust of the message last week. If you're saved, you will bear the fruit of salvation. If you're saved, you're bearing fruit right now. But when you're talking about assurance, you're talking about something a little bit different. Assurance is hard. We can lose our assurance. And assurance is hard to experience, and it's hard to hold on to, even though salvation is forever. There are times when you can struggle to believe that you are a possessor of true salvation. Why? Why is assurance so hard? That's the question we're going to answer in the first part of this message. I want to throw out one more little tidbit. This is a generality. In general, Christians doubt their salvation. Non-Christians never doubt their salvation. It's an important one to understand. That's an important one to internalize, actually. So let me give you some reasons why people doubt their salvation. Now, in full disclosure, what I'm going to share with you is not mine. I borrowed it because it was a whole lot better than what I'd come up with, okay? But it still stands true. Why do Christians doubt their salvation? What, what are the circumstances? Number one, convicting preaching. When, when the sermon delivers the Word of God, Hebrews says that the Word of God is is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And listen, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So convicting preaching will cause doubt because convicting preaching gets right down into the heart. A lot of what passes as preaching in churches today is basically a self-help sermon, is a pep talk, and is surfacy and shallowy and made to tickle people's ears. When a sermon is, is convicting and giving the Word of God, it's going to go all the way down to your heart. And it doesn't matter what the sermon is about. If it's about joy or anger, if it's about um, peace or doubt, if it's about husband and wife or the words that we say, no matter what, it's going to get right to the heart of the matter, convicting preaching. And if you're sitting in a place that deals with the word superficially, and I'm speaking to everyone here, if you're currently going to a church that deals God's word superficially, you probably will not struggle with doubts on your salvation. Convicting preaching, though, will. Number two, guilt. Some people struggle with assurance because of their life prior to salvation. 
these are the, the people who had a sinful lifestyle in the past. They may have a sensitive conscience. And Satan uses that to, to reduce guilt in their life and cause them to, to lack assurance of their salvation. Think about it. The standard of holiness in the Bible is so high that no one can attain it. Can they? No one can. Therefore, Jesus Christ attained that standard in our place. That's the message of hope that we have. But people struggle with assurance in their salvation because of, of guilt over their prior lifestyle before <coughs> they became believers. Number three, people misunderstand the gospel. What do I mean by that? Some people believe that the gospel is God's plan to save you and then you keep yourself saved. They would say, you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. Can I just say, that that's a setup for failure right there. Isn't it? Man. If, if, if I've ever seen a setup, that's, that's one. If you're trying to keep yourself saved by your works, you will never have any assurance. Number four, people doubt and they have assurance, lack of assurance because they have the wrong idea about forgiveness. You see, some people believe and are taught that when you get saved, God forgives all the sins of your past, but not the present and the future. And so you have to every day seek forgiveness for the sins of that day. There's, there's no lifelong blanket forgiveness. The problem is that you know you can't keep yourself righteous, and so you doubt. And then you start worrying, okay, did I ask the Lord for forgiveness of all my sins today? And what am I going to do tomorrow? Right? And, and so we, some people doubt their salvation because of wrong teaching about forgiveness. Number five, uh, people doubt their salvation because they can't remember the time of their salvation. I'd ask for a raise of hands how many can remember when they were saved. My guess is that probably half of you can't even remember exactly when you were saved. Many people fall into this category. This is the person, they grew up in church, and you prayed to be saved many times. Right? You doubt. You sin. So you're a child, you pray. Maybe you're an adult, you pray. You pray many, many times. And then when you think back, you're trying to figure out which one was the real deal. We, we had... Uh, we had some people that would get baptized multiple times in, in uh, my church in Memphis. You know, they would make a profession of faith and they get baptized. Three years later, they make another profession of faith and get baptized. And my pastor looked at me one time and he said, I'm just hoping one of them sticks. <laughs> the, the problem is that um, you'll probably never know which one it was. And if you pick one, you probably picked the wrong one anyway. But I've talked to many people who they came on to believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior. There was no one time they had such excellent teaching from their parents as children. They just took it on, and that faith is now their faith, right? And you can't name a place or a time. Number six, strong impulses of the flesh. Have you ever noticed that your spouse commits the same sin all the time? No, I'm just kidding. Have you ever noticed that you commit the same sin all the time? Seriously. Aren't you prone to the exact same sin, sins, and they're different from other people? Why is that? The answer is that it's ingrained in us. That's the nature of your sinful flesh. You have sins that you prefer because your flesh is is satisfied in that you keep going back to the same sin and the same sin. That doesn't make it right, by the way. It is just, it's, it's the, the nature, the impulse of your flesh. Let me give you two more. 
Number seven, a failure to see God's goodness in your trial. If you go to a church that we would call Prosperity Gospel Church, where God has a wonderful plan for your life, and God's going to make everything good in your life, then you're going to find that uh, when you need heart surgery, or that you have cancer, or maybe one of your children denies the faith, your career is stopped in its tracks, you're going to ask, why is God doing this to me? Why is He doing this to me? The nat- The natural line of reasoning is this. If God is my Father and gives me blessings from His throne, what's happening to me right now? This is a failure to go below the trial to the providence that is unfolding. And life is full of disappointments. And that is why Romans 8.28 is such a wonderful verse, isn't it? doesn't say that all things are good, because they're not. It says all things do what? They work for good. That might be why your career stalled. That might be why God's laying you up. You don't know what the providence is necessarily right now. But God, if you are in Christ Jesus, God right now in your disappointments in your difficulties, He is working these sometimes evil things for your own good and ultimately for His own glory. Let me give you number eight. And number eight, far and away, is bigger than all of the others. This is the granddaddy of all the reasons why people doubt their salvation and it's simply sin and disobedience. Think with me for just a minute. When do you most frequently doubt your salvation? It's right after you sinned, isn't it? Right after you've had a pattern of sin. The single biggest reason we doubt our salvation is sin and disobedience. If there is sin and disobedience in your life, and it's a regular occurrence, you will forfeit your assurance. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, if you're walking in disobedience, the Holy Spirit withdraws that assurance from you. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. And if you're not walking in the Spirit, you won't experience peace, will you? You won't experience love and joy. If you have sin in your life that is regular in and persistent, even though the, the tyranny of sin has been broken in your life, you will not have assurance. And along with that, you're not going to have love or joy or peace. And the Holy Spirit has every right to do that. The Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. doesn't say that. What happens when you grieve your spouse? What's the communication look like? It's kind of cold, doesn't it? And so a continual pattern of sin for a season will take away assurance, and, and it should. The only accurate evidence that you are a true believer, listen, this is so important, is righteousness and godliness of life. Not perfection, righteousness and godliness, but a dominant direction towards godliness and righteousness. And so many Christians misunderstand the nature of salvation and how it applies to the Christian life. And so with with this as an introduction, I want us now to think about the nature of salvation because this is going to help us. This will help us understand our sin and our righteousness and how they they work together, our righteousness through Jesus Christ. I want to briefly, and it's very light, and it's very brief. I want to review Scripture's teaching on conversion and, and, and sin in the life of a believer. And it's going to be very basic, but the idea is to give us guidance how to think. So the first thing I want us to think about is a word called conversion. You're familiar with that word, right? Conversion. It's a theological term. Conversion 
is a term we use to talk about salvation. Some people believe that conversion is turning over a new leaf. When you're converted, you, you just simply turned over a new leaf. You know, humans are just people who need, they need a little course correction. In general, people aren't that bad. We just need a little direction. Other people believe that that conversion is simply the masking of our sinfulness. They, they take the biblical idea, and this is a biblical idea, that we have taken on Christ's robes of righteousness, think the wedding garments parable, and extrapolate that to mean that when we get saved, we still have a sin nature, we just have God's Christ's righteousness placed over the top of us and it covers our own unrighteousness. That's wrong. Others have a dualistic idea of conversion. They, they, they believe that our lives are kind of like yin and yang. We, we have new life added to our old life and those two are duking it out. Which one's going to win today? And so for the rest of our earthly existence, our two natures... They're just fighting with each other. But none of these are accurate. The main idea that Scripture teaches with salvation is absolute transformation. Complete transformation. We're not reformed, as in reformed people, not theologically reformed. I'm, I'm talking about reformed people. We're not we're not corrected, we're not improving, we're not turning over a new leaf. We are subject to complete transformation. The Bible is very clear about that. Think about a very basic verse that all of us know. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What passed away? The old what? The old life, the old nature, the old self, what has come in its place? Complete new creation, new creature. This passage describes our new birth. Theologians use the term regeneration. You've heard that term, right? Regeneration. What does it mean to be a new creation? It means that our old value systems, our old beliefs, our loves, and our priorities have been replaced with new desires and goals and aspirations. Mark and I got to do a, a, an interview today, a membership interview, and that's exactly what that person said. I, I asked the question, I said, how do you know that you're, you're in Christ and what was the most immediate thing you saw? Brand new set of way of thinking, brand new set of desires. That was true of me, and I'm sure it was true of many of you. As soon as you got saved, did your life change immediately? Yes and no. It changed internally. You had a new set of desires but you're carrying that old flesh, right? And so why is this? Why do we have these new desires and goals and dreams? It's because we've been given a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit imparts an understanding to us. Listen to how Paul describes this new understanding. Very important. Now we have not received, we have not received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. You do not have spiritual understanding until the Holy Spirit is imparted to you, right? And we impart this in words, not taught by wisdom, but taught not taught by men, but taught by whom? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to only one type of person. And who is it? The spirit, spiritual. In other words, those who are in Christ. The spiritual here does not mean somebody who's, you know, he's way up here. No, it means somebody who's in Christ. Somebody who has new life. And so transformation, our affections and our thoughts come in line with the Lord because the spirit resides in us. There's another term used to describe what it looks like to be saved. One is transformation. Another one is new life. Another explicit teaching of Christians is that we all have received new life. Um, we see this in Ephesians chapter number 2, 
verses 4 and 5. He says, but, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Unreformed? Uncorrected? Just going the wrong way? What's the term? Dead. Absolute, 100% spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. That's in the Greek, the 100% part. Okay. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, did what? Made us alive together with who? Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of what God does. We lived in the realm of the spiritually dead, following the passions of our flesh, the course of this world, and we're by nature children of, na- of, of, of the evil one, children destined for destruction. Everything we tried to accomplish is in the realm of death. Think of this. Everybody you know who is not a believer, their goals, their desires, their dreams, everything that they're trying to accomplish is literally in the realm of spiritual death. Our works were dead man's works. Our dreams were dead man's dreams. But what did God do? He graciously made us alive. Another scripture is Romans 6. Romans 6, in verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into what? His death. Now we're a slightly different concept. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in what kind of life? New life. It's a totally new life. And so when we are saved, the Bible says that we die to sin. That's another picture. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. We die to sin. We're buried with Christ in baptism. We raise to what kind of life? The new life that he did. And it's pictured by the glorified body that Christ had. He had a new life. He had shed the body of flesh and had put on the new resurrection body. There's one more term uh, that's used in Scripture, and it's the idea of renewal. So we have transformation, we have new life, and we have renewal. In Ephesians chapter number 4, and verse number 23, Paul says, And to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, to put on what self? The new self created after the likeness, and it's what kind of righteousness and holiness? True righteousness and holiness. The world has a different kind of righteousness and holiness. You're righteous in their eyes if you let them do whatever they want. Right? Seriously. It's a completely different set of righteousness and holiness. The word translated new is not the usual word for new we see in Scripture. It's anoneo, and it means a new or qualitatively different life. It's talking about new in terms of quality. Our new self is, what is that new quality? Look at the verse. What is that quality it's created after? God himself, the likeness of God. Now this is a This is wonderful to know. Listen, dear believer, if you have been saved, you have a new life that's created after the likeness of God coursing through your body and your veins. It's after Him in its likeness is true righteousness and true holiness. We have been recreated after God's right, right likeness. And God is the source of that. Every Christian who is living or who has ever lived has new life. 
And I want you to think about something else, and this is exciting. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in two different Bible studies every week, and one of the Bible studies, we covered this verse, 1 John 5.11, and this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Listen, this life that we have inside us is no less than the very life of Jesus Christ Himself. That doesn't make us little gods, but Jesus' life is in you and in me. That overcoming, all-powerful life. Jesus conquered death, the grave. He raised people from the dead. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in all His glory right now. That is the kind of life that has been imparted to you and to me. Now let me ask you a question. Is that your life experience? How many woke up feeling that way this morning? To be honest with you, our experience probably does not bear this out. We feel that way, do we? These are the objective truths about who we are. How come we sometimes feel like we're defeated more by sin than conquering it? You ever feel that way? How come we feel like sometimes that instead of having the boldness of Jesus Christ, uh, I had a, a friend that used to look at Jordan when he's a little t- guy and say, are you a man or a mouse? I don't know if you remember Tony telling you that. We don't feel like a man, we feel like a mouse. We don't feel like we've got Christ in us. We feel like we've got a spirit of defeat in us. Why is that? What is going on? Enter our old nature. Okay? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, please. Such a critical chapter. Um, I'm going to ask that you turn to these passages because I'm going to be pointing to aspects of these verses and moving in my slideshows somewhere else. So you need to be able to refer back to some of these verses as we walk through this. Romans 6 is a great place to start. Verse number 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved. We were slaves. See, that's another picture. We have a new slave master. It's not sin anymore. Now, Paul in this verse uses two important terms. The first term is old self. Old self. Now, the word translated self, some of your translations might say man. The word behind it is anthropos, and it means old man. But what is the old self? What does Paul mean when he uses the term old self? Well, the word old refers to something that is worn out. It's obsolete. The word old here, this term can mean obsolete. Obsolete. Kind of like rotary dial phones and stuff like that, right? It's obsolete. No need for it. It refers to our unregenerate self. It's, it's you before salvation, your old self. What does he say? It was crucified with Christ. Now, what happens when something is crucified? He dies. A person is, when somebody is crucified, he dies. So our old regenerate self, is it dead or alive? According to Scripture, Romans chapter 6, it's dead. And we have been removed from the unregenerate's presence and control so that we should no longer follow the remaining memories of its old sinful way as if we're under its evil influence. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Notice the so that. In order that, here's the reason, the logic, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we can no longer be enslaved to sin. And that brings up the second term here that you need to understand, and that is that term, body of sin. What is the body of sin? 
The body of sin, there are, there are a couple different interpretations. I believe that the body of sin refers to the physical body that so easily responds to sinful impulses. Right? Our fleshly bodies are prone to sinful impulses, physical weaknesses, to failures and pleasures. How many here doesn't like a pleasure, right? See, our our bodies have corrupted inclinations in them, our physical bodies. This does not mean that we have two competing natures, the old and the new. We have one nature, a new nature, but that nature is imprisoned in unredeemed flesh. Now think with me about temptation. How does temptation come this way? Your way. Now, some of you are going to say heart. That's, that's true and it's not. Follow what I'm saying. We have a heart. Jesus said, for out of the heart come what? All these things, right? But who's he talking to? Saved or unsaved? Unsaved. What comes our way now, all the temptations that you face came through a sense. Right? You're tired, so you don't get out of bed. You're hungry, so you overeat. You see, so you lust. You touch, and you have these feelings, and so you act upon your pleasures. Sorry about that. Act upon your pleasures. You see what I'm saying? Temptation comes through our physical bodies. You hear, and so you're tempted to respond to whatever you hear. Somebody, think about this. Somebody tears you down. What's going to be your response? You want to get defensive. Now, where did the temptation come from? You're hearing. Where did the response come from? See what I'm saying? Okay? So, the Bible says that it's our physical bodies where this temptation comes from. We have a new nature imprisoned in, in unredeemed flesh. Now look down at verse number 12, Romans 6.12. What does he say? The word let not, in English, it kind of makes it sound like we're saying, you know, will you let me do something? When you see let not in Scripture, almost every time you see it, that's a, that's a command. In Greek, we call that the imperative tense. It's a command. Do not let sin, therefore, reign where? In your mortal body. The body that's going to die because to make you obey its passions. So in this present life, sin will always be a powerful force for the Christian to reckon with. It is no longer your master, no longer Lord, and it can and must be resisted. We are no longer enslaved to sin. It is Uh, no longer our master and Lord. Sin cannot reign in our bodies unless the believer chooses to obey its passions. Isn't that what the Bible says? Right? He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so the only way for sin to reign in your body is for you to decide to obey the passions of your body. So Flip Wilson was wrong, wasn't he? The devil made me do it. Because a believer is new creature in Christ, his immortal soul is forever beyond sin's reach. So what, look back at Romans 6.12, where does the sin reign? 
in your mortal bodies. He does not say in your souls. The only remaining beachhead where sin can attack a Christian is the mortal body. One day that body, though, listen, will be glorified and will forever be out of sin's reach. That is one of the things I'm looking most forward to when I get my resurrection body. And I'm sure you are too. But meanwhile, let me, let me back up for just a second. One day that body will be glorified and forever out of sin's reach. But in the meanwhile, it is still mortal and our bodies are still subject to corruption and death. It still has sinful lusts. Romans 6.12 says passions. Because the brain and the thinking processes are part of the mortal body and Satan uses those lusts to lure God's people back into sin in whatever ways he can. Now I want you to notice one more verse in Romans 6. Look at verse number 13 with me. Notice what he says. Do not present your members. What, what members are those? Verse number 12 tells us our bodies. Members of your body, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought for death, from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul does not warn about sin reigning in our souls. Paul warns about sin reigning in our bodies because that's the only place in a Christian where sin can operate. But it's obvious that sin can reign in our bodies because why else would Paul make this admonition? It'd be pointless for him to make it if sin didn't reign in our bodies. But it's also obvious that sin doesn't have to reign and therefore it would be equally pointless if, if, uh, if well anyway, you know what I'm saying, it would be equally pointless. Now I want to wrap everything up as we close here today. I want to wrap it up. When we are saved, we receive new life. Now that life, the Bible talks about, has to grow. It's like a spiritual baby. We're being birthed. There's a reason why the word birth is used. Babies are not very strong. They're not very resilient. But as you, get, as you grow up and you turn into an adult, you're much tougher and much more resilient. And think about a baby for just a minute. It takes time and it takes nourishment for that new life to grow stronger. And that's the same in our spiritual life. Same in our spiritual life. Every parent who has a newborn wants that newborn to grow stronger and more mature. They don't want them to stay a baby forever. They feed that little baby. And when, when the child gets older, they make sure that that little baby, that little child, exercises and works. Why? Because it is exercise and work that builds strong bodies. You want to mistreat your children? Do everything for them and don't make them work. You want to mistreat your children? Don't get them active. Let them sit around and do whatever they want. We all know that's, that's not good for children, right? They need to build those bodies stronger. Hard work never hurt any child or teenager. That was my dad's philosophy. <laughs> if, you, if you do not have your children working and doing things, they may look healthy, but any kind of exertion, any kind of trial is just going to do them in. Our new natures are the same way. We have qualitatively new life. It is empowered by the unlimited and awesome power of Jesus Christ. But our new life needs nourishment. And that is why we tell people, feed on God's Word so you can nourish yourselves, right? And that is why we tell people that the exercise is to resist sin. It is in the resisting of sin and it is in the practice of righteousness, doing righteous deeds and doing the right thing, that our spiritual beings are built up and we learn resistance to 
the sin that's reigning in our mortal bodies. If we feed the flesh, we starve our new life. If we resist sinful impulses, we grow stronger in our resistance to sin. And you know this, if you've been saved any time at all, the sins that used to get you, they don't get you quite as much anymore, do they, if you're growing in Christ? The sin that seems so attractive, that seems to knock you down, it gets uh, less and less inviting and less and less strong. And we, we grow and we mature in Christ. We resist sin more and we succumb to its temptations less. But another thing happens. Another thing happens. We also, as we become stronger against the sin, you know what else happens? We become more sensitive to our sin. And so as you grow in Christ, you know what you think about yourself? Less and less. Thank you. You, you think of yourself, I'm just nothing but a big old sinner. But you're actually sinning less than you were because God is making you more sensitive. It, it's just like anything else in life. The mechanic is very sensitive to hearing what's going on with a vehicle. If you've gone off sugar and you try something sweet, something you used to like that's sweet, what does it taste like? It's sickening, isn't it? And that's the same way in our spiritual lives. As we grow in Christ, we become more sensitive to that which we shouldn't have anyway. That's God's Holy Spirit working in us. We understand um, we are, that we're poor in spirit. That's why we feel that way. I'm such a big sinner. We understand our spiritual poverty. We mourn over our sin. We, in turn, we hunger and thirst for true righteousness. And as we see God's mercy and experience His grace, we become more merciful with others, don't we? This, in turn, makes us peacemakers. But now, because this, trans, this has happened in our lives, this progression, now we are transformed and we are hated by the world. And we are persecuted. And you know what? It is at this point in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus tells us to rejoice and be glad. For great is our reward in heaven. Let me end on this promise. You can turn with me to Romans chapter number 8. In Romans chapter number 8, Paul tells us that this new life will eventually be followed by new life to our mortal bodies. And that's what we're all looking forward to, isn't it? Getting rid of that mortal body of sin and getting our resurrected body, which is impervious to any kind of temptation of sin. It's a victorious new body. And I think one of the greatest effects I'm waiting for is that resurrection body in verse number 19 of Romans chapter number 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Some about the day. The day when Christ comes back. So many of the parables and so many of the things are said. The day when the wheat is separated from the tares. When the good fish are separated from the bad fish. When the weeds are sifted out when, uh, of, of the field. And all that sort of thing. The, that's the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, listen, beautiful poetic words here, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. If you are in Christ, you have a body that has died to the bondage of corruption but you're still enslaved in a mortal body that's in bondage to corruption. Does that make sense? Your old self is gone. You have completely new life, but your mortal body is in bondage to corruption. And look at what he ends with, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Who here is not waiting for that moment? Isn't that going to be a wonderful day? There are so many wonderful things about the day when Christ comes back that we can't even begin to describe them all, can we? 
This is just one of them, of many. One day, believer, you will be set free from your bondage to corruption. You will wake up in eternity and you will never succumb to temptation to sin again because there will be no temptation to sin. But until then, may God give us the grace to resist. Lord, I thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture. We thank you that in Christ, our old self was crucified with all his former lusts. It was, a, it was our old self was headed for death. I thank you, Lord, that we have been given new life in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we live in a, in a, a body that is subjected to corruption. And so I have no doubt that right now believers are doubting their salvation. They walked in this morning doubting their salvation, wondering, having, not having the assurance. And most likely, Lord, they don't have assurance because they have a pattern of sin. So I pray by the grace of your Holy Spirit and by the power of God that you will grace them with repentance. Lord, repentance is not only an attitude, it's an actual result in actions, that they will actually turn from their sin, not just mentally assent to it, that they will actually turn to God in righteousness, that they will do the hard work of resisting temptation because down the road, as they resist temptation, day after day, hour by hour, minute by minute, it begins to get easier. And I pray that you will glorify them one day in glory with a body that will never, ever succumb because there will be no more temptation. We long for that day, and so, Lord, come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.